It was a long time ago, and um, some of the details have faded from my memory at this point. But I remember sitting on the other side of my desk at my law office was a young man with a blank stare that looked a lot like this. He was 17 going on 18, and I was representing him in juvenile court. He was entering his senior year of high school. Football season was getting underway, and he was a starter on the team, and he was looking at colleges, and his whole life just seemed to be stretching out in front of him. That blank stare was a mixture of shock and disbelief. And the question running through his mind had to have been, now what? Because laying on my desk was a report that had just changed his life. It was the result of a court-ordered paternity test. And I had just informed him that that test indicated a 99.999% probability that he was the father of a child. It was dead silent in the room. It's like he got hit in football practice and got the wind knocked out of him. I'm sure he never meant for this to happen. And I'm sure he just thought that he and the girl were having a little fun. But now that decision that he made nine months before had unintended consequences. And still that question hung in the air, now what? And, and I tried as, as, as gently as I could to broach the subject of child support. How do you do that with a 17-year-old, right? But I had to inform him that even if he couldn't work full-time, he'd still be expected to, to pay the mandatory monthly minimum. That's the law. And he looked at me with total disbelief. You mean I'm, I'm supposed to get a job? But I'm still in high school. And I'm playing football. I don't have, I don't have time to work. And you know, I, I actually felt I felt really sad for him. And to be honest, I felt even sorrier for the child he fathered. Because I wasn't really dealing with a young man. I was dealing with a child. A boy. I mean, he knew how to have sex. I mean, that's, that's fairly rudimentary. But he had no idea what it meant to be a man or a father. And he had no apparent grasp of the responsibility of supporting the baby he helped create. And unfortunately, he didn't act all that inclined to man up. You know, the truth is, when you think about it, he was a child who had a child. And he was going to have to grow up fast. Because a necessary element, and just think about this, 
a necessary element of crossing that threshold from childhood to adulthood is taking responsibility for your actions. It's dealing with the consequences of your behavior and your decisions. And it's it's supporting yourself and those that are dependent on you. That's what adults do. Now today we're in the second week of our lesson series entitled Supporting My Family. And last week we learned that this word support is defined as follows. And and we defined this a couple of ways last week. And the, the first way we defined it is to bear all or part of the weight of something. In other words, to hold something up or to keep something from falling, to sustain something. That's, that's the idea of, of bearing all or part of the weight of something. But the second aspect of that definition was to give assistance to something or someone, especially financial assistance. In, in the case of my young client, the, the law expects him to support his own child. And when you think about it, that, that, that's reasonable, right? I mean, because he's responsible for bringing that child into the world. Granted, somebody else had a part in that as well, but he's, he's the father. He's responsible. But there's also another aspect of that, and that is so that the rest of us don't have to. Because we had no part in that decision. So the, so the child doesn't end up on public assistance. And last week we began this series with this biblical principle called Start with Self-Sufficiency. And we discovered that assuming, of course, that you're mentally and physically capable of doing so, our first financial responsibility is to support our own needs, ourselves, to, to support ourselves and the needs of those who are dependent on us by our own work so that others don't have to do that. As adults, as as mature Christians, we have a responsibility to work to support ourselves. Now, obviously, as we we were careful to point out last week, and I want to make sure we do that again today, if there's a mental or physical reason that prevents a person from working, then dependence upon others for support is understood. That's a given. As far as I'm aware, no Christian would have a problem with that. And some people have worked in such a manner that at a certain age, they're able to retire from working because their accumulated wealth allows them to stop working without becoming dependent upon others. Now, granted, I think probably everybody understands that you don't retire from God's work uh, as, as, far as, as far as ministry is concerned, even though your ministry might change with age, but, but you, know, you can always be engaged in the service of the kingdom of God. But it's interesting that the Bible, and this was pointed out last week, repeatedly condemns dependency due to laziness or idleness. People who are capable of working but just refuse to do so. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, if you're unwilling to work, you shouldn't eat. And it goes on to warn the church family not to enable dependency by supporting people who are capable of supporting themselves. 
In fact, if you read in the book of Proverbs, there's, there's one passage in the book of Proverbs that suggests that hunger is a tremendous motivator for work. Now, today's lesson is entitled, Supporting My Spiritual Supporters. Supporting those who support me spiritually, my, my spiritual family. Those who lift me up spiritually. Those who keep me from falling away from the faith. Those who sustain me through life spiritually speaking, who teach and train me and my family and who assist me in the walk of faith. Now, they brought the lights up because if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, you received an outline, which is a white sheet with holes punched on the side. And I want to direct your attention to the scripture at the very top of the outline, which is our focus verse. It's also up here on the screens. But the reason I, I want you to focus, focus on it on your outline it's because I want to direct your attention to some phrases that I want you to number and underline, and we'll get to those in just a moment. So let's, let's all recite this together. Here we go. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now notice what the Apostle Paul is speaking here, and notice what he says. He says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied. In other words, he said, I worked with my hands to supply three things, to deal with three different things. So, so he references the fact that he worked. He was a tent maker by trade. And his work was designed to enable him, and our work is designed to enable us, to provide support in three different spheres. Three spheres in which all Christians should, if capable, be operating. And those three spheres look like this. It says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied. And after the word supplied, put a little number one right there, and then underline the phrase, my own needs. He says, that's, that's that first sphere of support, is, is I support myself and my own family, my own needs, okay? And he says, then put a little number two before it says, the needs of my companions, and then underline that phrase. You know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Now, Paul's companions were those who traveled with him as he went on his missionary journeys. He didn't just go alone. He always went with a team of, of, of guys that, that traveled with him and did ministry with him. And this is his church family. So he supplied his own needs and the needs of his church family. And then, sec and then thirdly, it says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Right before it says the and weak, put a little number three. Because this is this third sphere of support. Those who cannot help themselves. Those who are either mentally or physically unable to work. Now, last week, we covered that first sphere when we, when we provide for ourselves and our own family. And today, we're going to look at the second, the needs of my companions in the faith, my spiritual supporters, or my church family. That's what we're going to be looking at today, again, through the eyes and the example of the Apostle Paul. 
Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to look into your word. And Father, we know that this is a difficult subject. It seems like whenever, whenever there is a, an issue of support or finances or money that's brought up in church, it always makes people uneasy, and I understand that. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us all to have open minds to what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us today. Help us to learn and to be willing to grow through what we learn and to put into practice what we learn. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said, today we're going to continue tracking the teaching and the example of the Apostle Paul. The man who began when we first meet him in Scripture in the book of Acts as a relentless persecutor of the Christian faith until one day as he was traveling to the city of Damascus to arrest Christians who were living there, he has a personal encounter with the risen Christ. And after his conversion and baptism, he went on to become the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived. In fact, helping to spread the good news and establish churches from the Middle East all the way to Rome. And some believe, some scholars believe, he actually made it all the way to Spain. In other words, he traveled, if they're correct, from the Middle East to the Atlantic Ocean, spreading the good news and setting up churches all across Southern Europe. He also wrote most of the books of the New Testament, the majority of them being letters he wrote to churches or to young pastors. Now, scholars believe that Paul was converted anywhere from somewhere in the neighborhood of three years to, to maybe eight years after Jesus rose from the dead. And after working at a church in a city called Antioch, which is still in that Palestine area, that church commissioned him to go out as a missionary and spread the good news. Now, his first missionary tour goes from Antioch. You see it there on the extreme right-hand side of the screen. They crossed part of the Mediterranean Sea to go to this island known as Cyprus. And that's where they first went, and they spent some time there spreading the good news there. Then they, they crossed the Mediterranean again and went into what is today modern-day Turkey. Now, this first missionary tour probably took place somewhere about 15 to 18 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And this first missionary tour, just to give you some idea of the length of time, is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two years that he was gone, out on the road, traveling from city to city, setting up churches, getting them going, and then moving on. And then after the end of that tour, he returned to Palestine to report on his work to his home church and to the church in Jerusalem. And then a year later, they send him back out, and he goes back out again. And on this second missionary tour, he travels this time, instead of across southern and, and central Turkey, he travels north, more toward northern Turkey, and he crosses over into Greece eventually, and he ends up in the city of Athens, the intellectual capital of the world at that time, and then he goes to a city called Corinth, which is located about 45 miles west of Athens. 
Now, Paul stayed in Corinth, scholars believe, for a full year and a half, if not longer. And it makes perfect sense if you understand the Apostle Paul. You may be thinking, why would he stay in one town that long? Well, Paul epitomized the phrase written by another missionary that is printed on the wall of our atrium, friends. And if you haven't read that in a while, here's what it says. It says, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul and you know anything about the city of Corinth, that city may have been within a half yard of hell. It was one of the largest, richest, and most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was a commercial center located on an important trade route with an estimated population at that time of 400,000 people. Even by the pagan standards of the day, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with moral depravity. It was known as the city where the vices of the east and west meet. Some people referred to people as being Corinthianized, which means you had no moral inhibitions whatsoever. The city centered around the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. It housed, this temple housed, believe this or not, a thousand priestesses, religious prostitutes, who offered their services to citizens and foreign visitors. Now, as was his custom, Paul rolled into this city and he began working as a tent maker to to support himself. And then he went to the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish house of worship, and he shared the good news of Jesus with the people meeting there. He, over time, began to meet resistance from the Jews and ultimately was kind of ejected from the synagogue, but interestingly, not before the ruler of the synagogue, the leading authority in the synagogue, became a Christian. Him and his entire family, a guy named Crispus. You read about it in the book of Acts. So Paul, after he left the synagogue, then began to focus his efforts on reaching Gentiles, non-Jews. And during his year and a half stay, the Bible indicates that many came to faith in Christ. So here it is, in the midst of an incredibly corrupt city, Paul appears to have had great success in establishing the church before he left. But all was not well in this church. About three years after Paul left, while Paul was working with a church that he had established about 200 miles away in a city called Ephesus, the Corinthian church sent a delegation of leaders to consult with Paul about a number of problems that they were experiencing, problems that had cropped up in their church. And if you read the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you find yourself scratching your head thinking, man, these people are whacked out. What is going on in this church? If you read the entire book of 1st Corinthians, you get the immediate impression that these people weren't getting along at all. There were tons of problems There was open and unrepentant sexual sin going on, which shouldn't come as a big surprise 
If you're, if you're reaching people in that culture, they were inundated with that kind of thing. And some of them were acting it out in the church. The problem was nobody was saying anything. Nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was calling for it to stop. Another problem they had was Christians were suing each other in court instead of resolving their problems within the context of the church family. Another problem is that the church was dividing into factions. And some scholars believe that part of what drove this was in, in those days they didn't have buildings like you and, you and I have here. They didn't have ministry centers where the whole church could meet. They met in houses and in neighborhood meeting places like, like small halls and things like that, which tended to create the impression of many small congregations operating throughout the city under their own leadership. And they turned into kind of rival competing units rather than one unified church. In fact, the Apostle Paul early in the book of 1 Corinthians says this. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. In other words, people that were in the household of Chloe's, the church that met there, had come to him in Ephesus and have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another important preacher that had come into town after Paul had been there. Another says, I follow Cephas, which is another word for the apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. You can imagine what those people were like, right? Hyper-holy types. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He's really saying to them, guys, you've got to grow up. Grow up. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? After all, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. In other words, he was the one that brought the good news to that, to that town first. He planted the church. Apollos came along after him and watered it. In other words, Apollos helped the folks to grow. He says, but God has been making it grow. So neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. He said, guys, wake up and grow up. Now, there was another problem going on in the church that really sets the basis for what we're going to study in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today. It was a problem that Christians had over meat sacrificed to idols. Now, I know that that probably sounds crazy to a lot of you, But here's the deal, all right? In that city and all across the pagan world, meat was sacrificed to different idols. And then some of that meat would actually get sold to the public. And the big question that arose in this church and in other churches was, can a Christian eat that meat? I mean, it's meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Is it acceptable for a Christian to eat that meat? And there were some Christians that said, well, yeah, it's fine. I mean, 
idols really don't exist. There are no other gods but God, so there's no, there is no real, I mean, <laughs> you're sacrificing it to nothing, so it doesn't, it doesn't damage the meat. And besides, you can buy it uh, in the market at, at a reduced rate because it was sacrificed. So, so you know, it's cost-effective, right? <clears throat> All right? And so there were a lot of people in the church that said, no, it's fine, it's fine. In fact, Paul would agree with them. Okay, those idols don't represent anything real, so it's okay to eat the meat. But there were some Christians who were conscience-stricken about that. And they're like, oh, man, I don't, that didn't feel right to me. Especially Christians coming from a Jewish background were like, ooh, that, that's, that's out of bounds. And a division rose in the church between those who would eat that meat and those who wouldn't. And the people that, that would eat that meat were like, oh, grow up. Get over it. And Paul says, you know, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And then he closes chapter 8 with this fascinating phrase. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He says... He says, here's the thing, if, you know, if you violate your conscience by eating that meat, you've sinned. And if me eating that meat is going is, is gonna to cause you to violate your conscience, then I'm not going to eat anymore. I'm not going to eat it. Now, interestingly enough, like I said, Paul would have agreed with the people that said, it's fine. Let me, give you, let me give you maybe a more modern day example that might help you think this through a little bit, okay? Suppose you and a couple of your friends, all Christians, all of you go here to Good News Gathering, okay? Suppose you and a couple of your friends decide you want to go to the movies. And two of you pick a movie and say, hey, we want to go see this one. But that third friend who's also a Christian, says, I don't know about that movie. I don't think that's good. And I don't think it looks right for us to be seen going into that movie. Now, the two of you are thinking, no, there's no problem with that. There's, it's, 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 it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with that movie. Should you lean on that other friend to go see it? Should you say, yeah, come on, come on, you can do it, it's all right, don't worry about it. And let's even suppose that the two of you are right, that God really wouldn't object to that, to you seeing that movie. Should you still lean on that person to go with you? Paul would say no. No. Because if that person violates their conscience, they have sinned. Because they believe it to be wrong, and to go ahead and do it is sin for them. And it's interesting. Because Paul says it's more important that you not create a stumbling block even for a weaker brother or sister than that you exercise what you believe is okay. 
In other words, he says, even if you have the right to do something, if it's going to cause another brother or some sister to fall, it's better not to do that. And then he launches into chapter 9. And he basically is giving a personal illustration of something he has a right to, but he has chosen to give up. He says this, he says, and and you have to understand, Paul was trained as a lawyer, so he begins with four rhetorical questions. And And he's basically asking the questions in a frame so that the answer is always yes. He says, am I not free? And the answer is yes. Well, yeah, you're You're free. Am I not an apostle? Well, the answer is yes. The problem is some of the people in that church apparently were questioning whether or not he was an apostle. Remember, there were some people who said, well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow, I follow Christ. I don't follow, Peter. I don't follow Paul because I'm not sure he's a, an apostle. Because that next, that next question gives it away. It says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And there were some who apparently questioned, did he really see Jesus? I mean, he wasn't one of the original 12. He didn't travel with them like every other apostle. Even the one that they picked to replace Judas who hung himself. That guy had traveled with them all the time, all three years. Matthias had been around. He'd been a witness of Jesus' ministry. He was there and saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Did Paul really do that? And the book of Acts records that Paul saw Jesus on one occasion for sure and perhaps on a second one where he describes being caught up to what he calls the third heaven. He says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He says, if you're wondering if I'm an apostle, think about what I've done. I brought the good news to your city. I helped establish the church. I trained you up. He said, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal or the proof or the evidence of my apostleship in the Lord. And then he goes into this argument that is just fascinating because he's defending his apostleship against these people who are apparently saying, I don't know, I'm not so sure he's an apostle. He says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? In other words, he's saying, don't we have the right to be supported by the church? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? As do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. He's saying, you know what, when Peter, that's Cephas, and the Lord's brothers, and we know he had four, um, and two of them wrote books in the New Testament, that would be James and Jude, and apparently they, the reference here would indicate that they were married, and the other apostles, these guys, when they traveled, they took their wives with them when they went on missionary journeys, and the churches they served were expected to support both them and their wife and family. And Paul says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and sisters? Or is it only I and Barnabas, one of his traveling companions when he was on certain missionary journeys, who lack the right 
could not work for a living? Hmm. He's saying, we have the right to be supported by the churches that we serve. And then he goes on to give seven different examples. And and here he goes. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Think about it. Here's what he's saying. He said, you know, when you sign up to be a soldier, they don't say, you know what? Uh, Thanks for signing up. You got to pay for your training, your equipment, your gun. By the way, that helmet's going to cost you 150 bucks. No, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, these people are going into training to protect all of us. We don't expect them to pay for that. We pay for that. He says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat from the grapes? Do you... You're going you're gonna to have somebody out there working in a, in a, with, with a bunch of grapevines and you're going to tell them you can't have any? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? So shepherds of goats, you got, you got these shepherds and they're working with all these goats, and, but, but don't, don't drink any of the milk. Do I say this merely on human authority? And then he reaches back in the Old Testament. He says, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, the Old Testament law said when you have an ox that is helping you do whatever it does <laughs> to, do, to work the grain, don't put a muzzle over it so it can't eat some while it's working. And Paul's point here is if God cares that much about an ox, what do you think he feels about us who are working for him. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because, and then he goes back to practical examples, whoever plows and threshes threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. He closes off with this statement, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? So he's saying spiritual workers should be supported by those they serve. And that brings us to financial responsibility number two. Remember last week, financial responsibility number one said support yourself if if you're capable by your own work so that others do not have to. And financial responsibility number two is this. If I am financially self-sufficient, I am responsible to support those who spiritually support me. Okay? If I am self-sufficient, I am responsible to support those who spiritually support me. Now, Paul goes on to say this. He said, if others have this right of support from you, Shouldn't we have it more? He said, what he's saying here is that, you know, these apostles, the other apostles go out like Peter and and other workers like that, and they are supported by the churches that they work with. And he said, shouldn't we have it more because we're actually the ones who came here first and established this church? He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So he did not exercise the right, even though he says he had it. 
Now understand, this is not true in every church. There were churches where Paul actually received money from the church. But this particular church was different. He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple, and here again, he's going back to the Old Testament, for examples. He says, those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. And here he's talking about this Old Testament example of the tribe of Levi who were assigned to work at the tabernacle and then later to the temple as priests, okay? And they were entitled to be provided a living from the tithes that were brought into the temple and part of the meat that was sacrificed. And then, it's like he pulls out the biggest gun of all. He says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So now he's gone from the Old Testament to Jesus. And he says, Jesus commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And, and, I, and when I first read that this week, I was like, okay, where does Jesus say that? And then it occurred to me. At one point, Jesus sent his 12 apostles out to spread the good news without him. And just as they were getting ready to leave, he makes this fascinating statement. He says, don't take any money in your money belts. No gold, silver, or even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. And when you think about what he's saying here, what what he's saying is supporting my spiritual supporters is both common sense on the one hand, and he gives you the examples of the soldier and the the guy that's working in a field or or a a shepherd or or a a herdsman, and, and he gives those examples, but it's also a biblical principle. Supporting my spiritual supporters is both common sense and a biblical principle. It's something that the Old Testament taught and Jesus brought it into the New Testament when he sent his followers out. Now, why is this so important? Why does this matter so much? And why does Paul seem to be going into so much detail and making this argument? I think it's, I think it's important because supporting my spiritual family, first of all, it helps me grow. When I support my spiritual family, when I give to help the ongoing ministry of Good News Gathering, it helps me grow spiritually. Why? Because part of maturing is taking the focus off yourself. See, that, that, that's, that's where that young man sitting across my desk at my office was. You see, he was still a boy, not a man. Because he hadn't yet crossed the line where that child was more important than himself. He couldn't see beyond himself. It was about, I'm still in high school. I'm still playing football. I got stuff to do. I don't have time to work to support that. When you think about it, friends, the essence of sin is self-centeredness. 
And until you get the focus off yourself, you will not grow as a Christian. The second thing is that it, it, supporting my spiritual family benefits my church family. It benefits my f- church family. You think, I th- you know, I think about the people here at Good News Gathering that are on the front lines. These are the soldiers of the faith, okay? And I think about people like those ladies that will probably be here today after the service for about an hour disinfecting all the toys in our kids' area. Probably most of you sitting in this room don't even know that happens. But there's a team of ladies that do that. These are soldiers on the front line. And you know what we don't do is we don't say, you know what, would you clean the toys and by the way, buy your own disinfectant. No. Wouldn't do that to them. I think about that team of people that come in to the office every week and they get together all of the materials for all of our children's program. And you know what we don't do? We don't tell those soldiers, hey, while you're at it, pay for the copier and bring a ream of paper with you. No, we support them because they're serving our church family and our children. I think about the guy that works in our middle school program that described to me during the break between services today with tears in his eyes the impact that one of those children had had on him that day and how he believes that that child has great things in store for him. You know, I think about the folks that serve in our cafe week in and week out providing coffee and donuts and all kind of stuff to make this place feel a little bit more like home when people come. And you know what we don't do? We don't say, hey, while you're at it, would you buy the coffee this week? No, we all take care of that. Because this is a family and we support each other and we grow spiritually when we support each other and it benefits our entire family when we support each other and thirdly, it furthers the outreach of our church. You know, I got a great phone call this past week. I'd received something from the city of Hillsborough. It was a form that they wanted me to fill out. And it was, it was innocuous. I mean, it was it's not that big a deal, but it, it was just one of those things where it's kind of like, I, I thought, I wonder why they want me to fill this, why they, why they want good news gathering to be on the dotted line on this, okay? So I called them. And I said, I just, I just want to make sure that, that you really meant to send this to us because you realize we're not actually in the city of Hillsborough. We're, we're outside of town. Did, did you mean for this to go to, to a church inside the city limits because of the way this thing was worded? And they said, no, we sent that to you because you guys are so involved in the community. And you know, part of what enables us to have the impact that we have is that we support each other and we give so that we can do things and do projects in our community. Now, you think about Paul has gone and gone to all this trouble and given all of these examples to indicate why he and his companions have a right to be supported by the church. And you're probably thinking, and I'm thinking, I was thinking to myself this week, if I'm reading this 
and I'm, a, and I'm in the church in Corinth, I'm expecting him to say, okay, pony up. It's time for you guys to start paying me. And Paul does the exact opposite. It's fascinating. He says, but I have not used any of these rights. Even though I've given you all these examples and I've talked to you about the fact that I'm an apostle, the other apostles all get, all, all get support. I'm, one, I'm like the anomaly. I'm the one that actually works for a living outside the church. He says, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. What an interesting word. And there have been a lot of different interpretations, but some scholars believe that what he means by this is he says, you know what? I want to be able to say I didn't take anything from you. I didn't take anything from you. And I don't know, there seems to have been something going on in that church where Paul was determined that he would be absolutely, no questions asked, no holds barred, above suspicion. No one would be able to say, you're just in it for the money. No one would be able to say, you're, you're not really motivated by a love for the good news or a love for other people. He was hyper-careful with this church. And he says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Why? Because God called him to this. This was his life work. And he said, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free. In other words, he's saying, you know, I could ask for it. But I'm free and I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. You see, that was Paul's ultimate end. To bring as many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as he possibly could. And if that meant that at this church, at this time, in this town, I don't take money, then that's what it's going to be. You know, I remember as I was preparing this lesson, I thought back over the history of Good News Gathering, and I remember when we first started, we were a tent maker church. Nobody got paid. We didn't have the money. We were small. We were renting space at Southern State. We could only meet there on Sundays, and every the rest of the week we had to meet in, in various homes and things like that, but nobody got paid. In fact, you know, to this very day, most of the leadership team, in fact, the vast majority of the leadership team has always been tent makers. They've always had other full-time jobs. I don't think anybody started getting paid, and it was only part-time until maybe three years in, as I recall. And simply at that point, it, it, it became unbearable, the weight, of the, the weight of this project, because by that time, we'd grown to about 300 in rented facilities. 
And the leadership team was like, we've got to have, have somebody looking this thing over and, and trying to administrate and keep things on track because this is getting, it's getting to the point where we can't, we can't manage this entire thing. And I wonder sometimes if part of the reason Paul refused in this particular church to take money is I wonder. And some scholars have suggested that it's because in those days there were traveling wisdom teachers that would go from town to town and they would, they would kind of set up shop in a town and they would, they would talk about how they had elevated philosophical wisdom and for a certain price they would be more than willing to inform you of that. And the deeper you went into their realms of wisdom, the more you paid. And some scholars believe that Paul was really trying to separate himself from that kind of thing. And you know, I, I remember when we first started Good News Gathering, we tried to make it so very clear that no one on staff would ever know who does or doesn't give at this church. That was going to be one of the things that, that, that would only be handled by financial people that would all be confidential and we would not be allowed to know any of that information. It was one of the reasons why we decided, made a decision before the first service, we'd never pass a plate. we just put the containers in the back and people feel, give as they feel led by God. It's another reason why I hear at Good News Gathering we've never tried to pressure people to give and we've never engaged in any of those religious gimmicks that you see on TV. Like if you send us $100, God will give you 1000 I always want to flip the field on those people, you know? You send me the $100 to see if God gives you the 1000 you know? They never offer to do that. But we never wanted that to become an issue and I think Paul was trying to be so careful with this particular church because it was obvious there were people there that questioned who he was and the authority that he had. So friends, I want to close up with just three obstacles to supporting my spiritual supporters. There there are three things I think that make it difficult at times for people to support their spiritual family. And I think the first one is this, and that's just a lack of self-sufficiency what we covered in week one. There are people that just simply are not financially in a position to support their church family. And it's sad because I've seen the pain in people who want to help but can't, whether it's because of an illness or because of a loss of a job or a financial, bad financial decision that's put them underwater. And it hurts when you see a need and you're not in a position to help. Um, but that's one obstacle. There's a second obstacle, which I've, I've kind of entitled misplaced focus. And here's what I mean by this. This is, this is, this is and I've heard people say this, well, you know, this, this church is, this, you guys are doing fine. I mean, obviously, look around. I mean, <laughs> y'all, don't, y'all don't need my support. And this is a misplaced focus because really what that person has done is they shifted the focus to the church family and not on themselves because it's not about the church. 
Because in a sense, they're correct. The church doesn't need anybody's money. If God is in this, he will get us what we need to do what he wants us to do. But the focus is really on each individual and the fact that you and I need to give. We need to give to get beyond ourselves and to understand that God's work is worthy of being supported. You know, I think of this misplaced focus as kind of a form of ignorance as bliss. Because it seems to me like some people just kind of believe that they walk in here and all this happens by magic, you know? I show up at 9 o'clock or at 1045 and boom, all this just kind of happens. And there's these people that take care of my kids and teach them. And there's these people that give me coffee and donuts. And there's people that, that hand me a program. And all that stuff just happens magically. And they never really think about all the people and the work it takes to actually do this week in and week out. There's a third obstacle to supporting my spiritual supporters, and it goes like this. It's, it's what's called a consumer mindset. It's a consumer mindset. It's this idea that, that I'm not, I'm here to be served. I'm not here to serve. And we have to remember that we're called to be contributors, not just consumers. And I saw this, I remember this happening several years ago, actually back when we were at Southern State, and we had a bunch of people just kind of show up on a Sunday morning and and I knew that they had been in a, a different church, and, and when they show up in a block like that, that's always concerning. And so at one point I asked one of them, I was like, so, so is everything okay at the, at the other church? And, and they're like, oh, yeah. And I was like, well, what, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> It was just kind of funny because they said, well, you know, we like to get your brochure, the, your lesson series brochure at the beginning of the year. And, and if we like what you're teaching, we'll come here for, for that series. And then, and then we'll go to this church over here. And then we'll go to a church over here. And it's like they were just kind of going and taking in and never giving back, never really becoming a part, never really playing a role never becoming a part of a church family. And it's kind of a what's in it for me attitude. And this is a heart problem. This is something that they have to work on because this is something that's not healthy and it won't help them to grow. So friends, remember financial responsibility, number one, is support your own needs by your own work so that others don't have to. And secondly, financial responsibility too. If I'm financially self-sufficient, I'm responsible to support those who spiritually support me. Now friends, this morning there's a couple of next steps in that box at the bottom of your outline. And first of all, I want to point out to you that on March 7th, which is a Saturday, and March 8th, which is Sunday, from 9 to 9, 9 a.m. on Saturday to 9 a.m., right up to first service on Sunday morning, we're going to have a 24-hour 
Bible reading and prayer time here here at the ministry center. And if you're not able to actually come into the ministry center, we have a way that you can do your prayer and Bible reading off-site. But but this is an important and a powerful time for good news because we read through in that 24-hour period the entire New Testament. And people are here at the ministry center around the clock praying and reading the New Testament as we prepare for decision day. And if you're interested in being a part of that, please check the box on your connect card that says 24-hour prayer and Bible reading. The second thing is this. If you are struggling with financial self-sufficiency, we have something here at Good News that can help you make sense of your financial picture. It's called the Freed Up Financial Living Class. And if you're interested in that, friends, this is a totally confidential service that we provide for folks. And it's something that can really help you analyze where you're at and help you get to where you need to go. And you can indicate your interest by writing Freed Up on your Connect card. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for this time that we can spend in your word. Help us, Father, to live what we learn from you. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.